The first thing that we need to know, okay, this is if you take nothing else away from today. Uh, this is the nugget that you guys should take away today. In celibacy, sex, marriage, and divorce, the goal is not to satisfy the flesh, but glorify the spirit. Okay? So if you look at the sum total of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, these things exist in human life and interaction, sex, celibacy, marriage, and divorce. They happen, okay? Um, but the goal is never to satisfy the flesh, but to satisfy the spirit in all of these things. And this is where we have to start really leaning on the spirit and the word of God to give us wisdom in each of our unique circumstances. Now, um, uh, as we know from uh, Paul's letter so far, the, the church at Corinth struggled with a lot of things. They were a church that the worldly city around them looked at and goes, man, you guys are really messing up the whole sex thing. Um, you guys are going far enough that even the very worldly church looks at the, or the worldly city, looks at the church of Corinth and goes, one step too far, guys, one step too far. And that's saying something when this city was the most promiscuous city that existed in that time. They just did whatever they felt like with whomever they felt like, whenever they felt like. And they went and looked at the church and said, you're sleeping with your in-laws. That's kind of gross. Um, and so, so, I mean, that's kind of the phrasing that they used. Um, and, and so we have a church that does not understand sex in the um, light of the glory of God. Okay? And so Paul was speaking to them about, you know, you really ought to um, not do the things you are doing. But it's not so much that their church was way off bounds. The church had also written them for some questions. So Paul in chapter 7 is addressing the matters concerning the church that they wrote about. In fact, he starts off with, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Okay? So he is now turning his attention to the questions that the Corinthian church has asked about. Not the things he's heard about, not the things he's seen, but the questions that the Corinthian church had about sex and celibacy and marriage and divorce. How did these things play in the life of a Christian church? And so Paul is going to answer those questions, and that's kind of how this chapter pans out. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about celibacy. Let's talk about divorce and figure out how they are supposed to be or not be in the life of a Christian who is seeking to be holy in the midst of an unholy culture. Um, and so there are responses for all of these things, and he kind of ticks them off as he goes through the chapter. It's a relatively long chapter, um, and I would really urge you, after the message today, to go home and read through it to get the full complement of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to pick some highlights of each of those topics. Now, um, uh, Paul starts off um, with the answer to the question, um, uh, how does marriage and sex work? Because the Corinthian church clearly did not understand how it worked. They were sleeping with their step-parents, and they did not understand there are certain things that are permitted and certain things that are not permitted. So the first thing that Paul addresses um, is, uh, is um, and I have mine out of order, so we're going to go to this one. 
Sex is a holy, good, and enjoyable blessing for a man and woman within the covenant of marriage. This is the first thing Paul wants the church at Corinth to know. There are a few things that he is pointing out here. One, sex is good. It's a gift from God. Two, only within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. This is going to help the Corinthian church understand that they can't go to the temple and have sex with prostitutes. Not acceptable. That they can't have sex outside of the bounds of marriage. That if they're single, sex is off limits. It's only for a married man and woman within the covenant of marriage. And then it is a good and beautiful thing. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, it says this. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Don't deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul says, listen, sex is this beautiful thing for married people. And for not married people, no, is kind of the answer. The Corinthian church had gone way off the deep end in a bunch of other places and had decided that sex was acceptable wherever and with whomever they felt like. They were falling prey to the idea that if culture says it's okay, if the law says it's okay, then it must be okay. But what is permissible according to culture is not necessarily permissible according to the word of God. And we as Christians are called to be holy in a challenging culture, which means we hold ourselves to the standard of the word of God, not to what culture says is acceptable. Paul is correcting their view here. And he's in essence saying this, if you are seeking sexual gratification from anywhere or for the Corinth church, anything but your spouse, you are sinning not only against God, but you are sinning against your spouse or future spouse and your own body. If you remember at the tail end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, we read this last week, verses 18 through 21. Um, Paul says this, flee sexual immorality. That means... Sex outside the bounds of marriage. Every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You belong to God and your spouse. Therefore, those are the qualifications for when you may enjoy sexual relations. Does this make sense? The, the Corinthian church did not understand this. They did not <laughs> hold to the bounds of the covenant of marriage within sex. And Paul was correcting them, saying, listen, anything outside of the covenant of one man, one woman, is considered sexual immorality. And stop it, is what Paul says. Um, Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all. Let it be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. God puts a really high standard on marriage. It's the way it started off 
um, in the book of Genesis, and we'll get there in just a minute. Um, but Paul, the first thing he wants the Corinth church to know is that which you are seeking, that which you are doing, um, sex, is only for marriage. No other, no other thing fits. Only for marriage. Now, the second thing that Paul addresses is celibacy, because there are only two ways to live in life. You are either um, married and then permitted the gift and the beauty of sex, or you are single and therefore permitted the gift and the beauty of celibacy. And Paul considers both sex and celibacy to be gifts from the Holy Spirit. Um, Paul uh, writes to the Corinth church in chapter 7, um, verses 6 through 9. Uh, I wish all could be as I am, single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So God says this. Being married, good thing. Being single, also good thing. If you're married, you can enjoy your spouse. If you are single, then celibacy is the gift you have for now. Um, like sex, celibacy is a holy, good, and enjoyable blessing for a single person, whether it be for a lifetime or until marriage. Okay? So some people, Paul says, are called to singleness and celibacy for a lifetime, like Paul was. He just... You read some of his writings, and he just didn't understand why people would want to get married. He had the gift of singleness, the gift of celibacy. That meant all of his desires, and he was a human, so he had desires, were to be channeled and submitted to the glory of God so that he would not fall into temptation and sin. He had a gift of celibacy. If you are single, you have the gift of celibacy. You must rely on the Lord to utilize that gift as he has so called you. But it is indeed a holy, good, and enjoyable blessing to be single and celibate for the Lord. Um, uh, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 19. And we're going to flip back and forth between 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew chapter 19. So if you want to put fingers uh, in either place there, you can. Um, Matthew chapter 19, verse 12 Jesus is talking, and the disciples are talking about marriage, um, and they're asking him, listen, um, is it better not to marry? I mean, with everything that you're telling us, and the kingdom coming about, and all of the things that can happen in the world, is it just better not to be married? And Jesus said, not everyone's going to receive what I'm about to say, only to those whom it is given. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let those who are able to receive this, receive this. There are some people, Jesus says, that are made eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God, meaning made celibate. They are choosing not to engage in a marriage 
and physical relationship. They are choosing to channel all of their energy towards being single for the glory of God. Some people have that gift, and it is a good and honorable thing. We should never, ever, ever teach in the church that singleness and celibacy is less than marriage, right? Because marriage is a beautiful thing if you have that gift from the God. But singleness is a beautiful thing if you have that gift from God. Both single people and married people can be complete in Christ. If you are single, you are not less than. You are not lacking. You do not have a less understanding of the kingdom of God. You have the fullness of God dwelling within you, and you can live as a single person for as long as God gives you the gift of singleness. Now, there may come a time when he gives you the gift of marriage, but until then, you have the gift of single. Does that make sense? Unfortunately, the church tends to teach that marriage is this beautiful picture where God um, helps you understand what it is to be complete in him by becoming one flesh with your spouse. When we teach that exclusively, we teach that single people are incomplete and that single people are lacking. And that's why we constantly see Christian singles groups trying to match you up with the person that God has designed for you. And we are negating the beautiful idea that Paul says singleness is a gift. It's not a sin. It is a wonderful thing in which we can live in singleness and submit all of our desires, our physical desires, to the glory of God, to have him temper them and make us holy in the process. This is a beautiful thing, and we need to honor those who have the gift of singleness and those who have the gift of marriage. So celibacy and sex are both holy, good, and enjoyable for those whom God has blessed with those gifts. Now, marriage. Um, according to scripture, marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Okay? A covenant, not a contract. Two totally different uh, experiences in the world. And this is a covenant between a man and a woman before God and a bunch of other witnesses. But uh, really, the before God part's the important part. Uh, for the covenant. Now, a covenant works out like this. In the Old Testament, covenants were made between um, uh, two nations or two clans or two people groups. And they would come together and they would, um, generally speaking, cut a bull and they would pass through the bull together. Um, and they would say, when we break the covenant, what happened to the bull will happen to us. This is a very serious thing. We are saying that we won't break the covenant because uh, death is the penalty for breaking a covenant. And then uh, they would then cut their arms and they would mingle their blood together. This is where we get the term blood brothers um, because blood was uh, of the covenant was thicker than the bond of family blood, okay? So you are uniting together in something that is um, permanent and lasting. And then they would take ash from the fire where they burnt the bowl and they would rub it into their arm wound. And that would develop this horrible, probably infection, but then scar, right? Um, and, uh, and then they would have this really visible scar to remind them of the covenant that they had entered into. Now, we don't do that in marriage, right? Aren't you so thankful that we don't make you walk through a, a, a split bull um, and, and get the garments of the wedding all messy, right? Um, no, instead, we walk together down the aisle, 
right? I'm still symbolizing this walking through something, right? And then we exchange rings, which is the sign of the covenant of marriage. And we do this, dearly beloved, we are gathered together before God and the sight of our loved ones, right? This is the marriage language because it is a covenant. See, a covenant is meant to be sustained for the duration of life. A contract has a loophole. A contract says, I will continue to do this until. I will marry you so long as you. And I have heard a lot of marriage vows. And some of them are not vows. Some of them are self-seeking statements. Quote, I will love you as long as I am able. What happens when you aren't able anymore? What happens if you wake up and your spouse has horrible bed hair and bad breath and, and didn't put the toilet seat down and didn't do the dishes and forgot to take the trash out and you know stepped on your toes and used the last of the hot water and squeezed the toothpaste tube from the middle of the toothpaste, right? And hogged the blanket all night long. And all of the things, right, that happen within marriage, you're all laughing because you know, right? Um, contracts will say, when I'm tired of that, I'm out of here. Covenants say, for the glory of God, I will work with God and my spouse to be redeemed in this marriage and be more like Christ on the outside of it than on the inside of it. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. It is meant to be a unique relationship among all other relationships that you have. So, like we say God is unique and there is no one else like him, that makes him holy and set apart because he is, that is the definition of holy, set apart and unique. There is no one else like him. The marriage relationship is unique. It is holy. It is set apart. There is no other relationship that you will have that is supposed to be the same as that marriage relationship. That marriage relationship is different than any other physical or emotional relationship you will have with anyone else on earth. It is a unique relationship set apart from all others. Like scripture says, two people become one people, right? Two people become one people. Two fleshes unite and become one flesh. And this is how God designed it between man and woman before God, enjoying each other within the bounds of marriage. Um, in First uh, Corinthians 7, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. It works the other way around, right? So what Paul is saying is, when you get married, you're married till death do you part. Marriage is a covenant. You are bound to work together by the help of the Holy Spirit for better or for worse, in sickness or in health, in richness or in poverty, right? Come what may, no matter what, until one of you or both of you dies. That is how marriage is designed to be. Matthew chapter 19 talks about this. 
Jesus has this whole section about marriage and divorce in Matthew chapter 19. Um, and in verses 7 through 9, uh, I'm sorry, in, in verses uh, 4 through 6, he talks about this. The Pharisees came up and tested Jesus. They tried to trick him all the time. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, back in that day, legally, as a contract, you could divorce your wife for any cause. So, so they were like, is this permissible in God's eyes? So the law says it's okay. Even some Jewish tradition said it was okay that you could divorce your wife because she burnt the you know, potato pancakes in the morning. Or, or you could divorce your wife because you don't like how she did her hair. You could divorce your wife. That was not a good place to be in God's community. So they asked him, and he answered... Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cling to, be bound to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, don't let man separate. I.e., if God does something, why do we think we can undo it? If God does something, what gives us the identity that thinks we are better than God, no better than God, can undo what God does? Jesus is challenging his people to understand that marriage is a beautiful gift, like singleness, but it should not be entered into lightly because it is a gift that is until death do us part. Then that leads us with this really sticky situation. Because he is talking about divorce in this passage. And, and divorce is this sticky kind of thing where it is permissible in a few situations. As is remarriage. Permissible in a few situations. Ideal? No, it's not the ideal. Covenant until death do you part is ideal. There are some circumstances in life where divorce is permissible. Um, if you read in 1 Corinthians, let's flip there for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10, and, uh, 10 through 16. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, Paul is saying, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as is, they are holy. If the unbelieving partner separates, then let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved to that marriage, and God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? And husband, how do you know whether or not you will save your wife? Paul is saying this. The, the idea here is that you guys should stay together. That's the ideal within God's uh, economy. But there are some circumstances where divorce does happen. An unmarried or an un, unbelieving spouse says, I just can't with this. And he leaves. God says, okay, 
you're free from this marriage. The spouse has abandoned you. There are a few circumstances that scripture says are permissible. Abuse, right? Adultery and abandonment are the permissible reasons for divorce, according to scripture. Um, I would say this. If you are being abused, call the cops and leave, right? Reconciliation is possible, but not always. But you have freedom within God to A, call the cops because it is against the law to beat somebody. Two, to seek the help of the church so that we might help your spouse be brought under um, godly teaching and be reconciled. To the Lord. Maybe not to you, but to the Lord. Um, adultery. Scripture gives us very clear permissions. If your spouse has cheated on you, that is a permissible reason. It's not commanded, but it's permissible for divorce. Um, and if your spouse has abandoned you and just upped and left and said, I'm not doing this anymore, that is a permissible reason for divorce. But the Bible permits divorce. Uh, it is so the wronged party may remarry, okay? When the Bible permits it through abuse, adultery, or abandonment, it is so God can say, this has gone horribly wrong, and I am providing a way for the wronged spouse to remarry and have a life again in a way that they would desire. But if the divorce was not biblically legitimate, then neither is remarriage. This is the hard part because in our culture, right? And again, as Christians, we are called to be a holy people in a challenging culture. And our culture says marriage is a contract wherein you can divorce for whatever reason you feel like. You can divorce because you don't like them. You can divorce because you got tired of them. You can divorce because you're just not willing to work anymore. You can divorce for whatever reason you feel like. There are many reasons to divorce according to our culture. But according to God's word, there are only a few permissibles, and they aren't commands. Just because they are permitted does not mean they are commands. You have the freedom there to say, I want to stay and try and work this out, or it's just not going to for my safety or well-being, and we have to divorce. Then they are permissible, but only in those cases is remarriage permissible. So what happens, the question is, if my divorce was not biblically permissible? What happens if I am in a situation where we got divorced before we ever knew what was biblically permissible. What happens if I was married, divorced, and then gave my heart to Christ and realized what I did, the way that I lived, was not permissible according to God? God would say that improperly divorced or remarried people, because sometimes you can get remarried before you know, um, improperly divorced or remarried Christians should stay as they are. Okay? So, if you were improperly, unbiblically divorced, then came to realize it, and you are single, then you stay single. And if you were improperly divorced according to biblical standards, and you remarried, and then you realized it, then don't divorce your current spouse. Stay married, and repent to the Lord, and make the amends that you need to, if there are amends that need to be made. 
But there is something very holy about the institution of marriage that God does not take lightly. So there are very few circumstances by which he permits divorce. And if you find yourself this morning realizing, I have strayed outside of the bounds of that, then I would really encourage you to come talk to me. Because our world permits a lot, and sometimes we don't talk about what the Bible permits. And we allow what the world permits and say it's what the Bible permits. What we want as a church, what I want as a pastor, what Jesus wants more than anything else in the world, is to help you guys live according to the will of God for your life. And there are so many complex sticky, challenging, horrible, painful things that can go on in the world of marriage and divorce. And while there are very good guidelines, every single situation needs to be weighed with the most utmost prayer and Holy Spirit and guidance and patience to find the course of action that would please the Lord and be healthy for the people that is involved, okay? So I say all of this, okay, about sex and celibacy and marriage and remarriage and divorce and all of that, not to point a finger of condemnation at anybody this morning, okay? But to reveal to you what the word of the Lord says about these topics which really play into our spiritual well-being. Sex is a spiritual well-being kind of thing. So is celibacy. Um, marriage, divorce, and remarriage they all play into our identity and who we understand ourselves to be. God has designed um, these things to help us understand some of the revealed kingdom. And when we start messing with these things, we start to, as scripture would say, sin against God, sin against other people, and sin against ourselves. As people called to live holy lives in a challenging culture, we will not be able to do that unless we hear exactly what the Word of God says on these points. Um, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19, talks about it um, in uh, verses 7 through 9. They said, Moses got to divorce people. And Jesus says this, and this is a, a decent rule of thumb. Because of the hardness of hearts, Moses was allowed uh, allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Um, God, in, in, in Deuteronomy through Moses, gives concessions for divorce. But in Genesis, God gives us the idea. If you are called to marriage, stay married. If you are called to singleness, stay single. If you are married, you have the gift of sex. If you are single, you have the gift of celibacy. All are beautiful. All are part of God's holy kingdom. All of them. None are less. But we must learn to walk by what the word of God says in these areas because the culture tells us a lot of stuff. The culture permits a lot of stuff. But we are not called to be imitators of culture. We are called to be imitators of Christ. Christ, single, right? His whole ministry. A single man. He grew up with the same physical desires that every other person grows up with. And he submitted them to the Holy Spirit. And he said, lead me, Lord. Your will be done, not mine. Day in and day out, he sacrificed his desires for the will of God. And he said, you can do that too. 
as single people and as married people. So here's my prayer for us as we close in worship. That with all of the highlights of what we've talked about from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, sex, celibacy, marriage, divorce, remarriage, that the Lord would have brought to light something in your life that you can talk to him about now. Something in your life that you might not have realized um, needs an area of adjustment. And it may just be submitting your physical desires to the Lord and saying, Lord, help me. Funnel them towards my, my spouse or submit them to you so that I can live a holy, single life until you have called me to live otherwise. Those two actions producing you holiness for the kingdom of God and set you apart from culture. Let's pray and then we'll worship. Lord, today was a lot of stuff to take in and, and frankly a hard message to preach because I feel like it jumped all over the place. And, um, I'm, I'm praying, Father, that the words from Scripture um, and the truths from Scripture would be nuggets that can be taken away by us this morning and applied to our lives. Every single one of us falls into the category of single or married. So there is something to be gleaned for us today, for our single lives or our married lives. I pray for the hearts of everyone this morning, that there would be no condemnation here, that there would be no guilt for the things that have been done in our lives that maybe we shouldn't have done. Your word tells us that in Christ there is no condemnation, that you took away shame and guilt and you nailed it to the cross, that you've redeemed us from the things that we should not have done, but we did anyway. And Lord, I'm so thankful for Paul because he says, I know exactly what I should be doing and I'm not doing it. And I know exactly what I shouldn't be doing and I did do it. And even Paul, one of the greatest evangelists and most passionate leaders for you struggled and had to submit his life to you day in and day out. Lord, I'm thankful that you are perfecting us as your people, that you continually remind us of your call to be holy in a challenging culture, that you have given us the gifts that you have seen fit to give us and the strength to walk in them. Help us, Father, live a holy life as married people or as single people for the glory of God and the good of the kingdom around us. May we be lights in a dark world. May we be um, an example to those around us for your namesake. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.